welcome, welcome. My name is Joy, and uh, I think I know most everyone here, but if you don't know me, I'm, uh, I also sometimes will be here behind the keyboard and singing, and uh, my parents are the, the pastors here. Um, <laughs> and uh, so speaking of being a pastor's kid, that's kind of my segue. But anyway, just so you know who I am. But anyway, um, I accepted Jesus into my life as a young girl. And I've journeyed with him over 30 years since then. And I have a photo here, uh, Daniel, of my mom and sisters and I in the bottom right corner. I'm the one who's behind whoever's arm that is. You can sort of see me. And then Tabitha is next and Esther next. And then my mom on the right wearing the red sweater. And up here on the left is a facility. And at this age, my parents or my... I don't actually recall if my dad was there or not. It might have been something my mom did with us when we were homeschooled during the day. Um, But we would go and prepare, help prepare food, and then we would help serve the food to people who didn't have enough food to eat, and they would come and stand in these lines. And um, I remember sometimes uh, some of those folks giving gifts to us because they probably didn't see very many little kids serving them food. And they would... I don't know where maybe they were dumpster diving or what. I, I actually still have a like a creche from a nativity that was given to me at that time. Um, but anyway, this you would think that with these type of roots that I have, it's kind of a head start that I might be further along in my journey now that I'm in my 30s. And I sometimes think that way about myself. I really shouldn't get so worked up about life's challenges. I should be stronger when life hands me disappointment or sorrow. I should be more spiritually mature and have learned more by now. Maybe I might even have arrived by now, whatever that is, but I haven't. And I was contemplating this and I thought, perhaps we weren't meant to arrive. Perhaps we were never meant to say, walking along this earth at some point, finally, I'm here. The pinnacle of spirituality, I made it. I've learned all those things I talked about in church and I've read all the Bible things I needed to know about and I, I, it's in me and I am in it and I am in God and I have transformed into the likeness of Christ. I have absorbed all that is necessary and now I no longer need God. I have arrived. And following that thought, this is just a personal observation. I don't think we will have arrived either upon reaching heaven. If this life is a small, broken forecast of our experience with God in heaven, I venture to say, or to conjecture, I think we will also spend eternity experiencing a journey of love with God and with each other, still not arriving, still dependent on God, still needing his grace, his mercy, and his power, yet having access to those without the muddy disruption of sin and shame. In the meantime, having not yet arrived on earth, here we are, trying to navigate life that swings from happy to boring to enraging to tragic in a moment's notice, disappointed with our own internal reactions to life, unable to get our act together, despairing, instead of keeping our heart in a place of God-abiding peace. I would like to pause here to pray a prayer that Jesus prayed in Matthew 11. Would you pray with me? I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. 
And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One of the books I'm reading lately is titled Living in Christ's Presence by Dallas Willard. Daniel, you could pull that up for me. Oh, there's our scripture verse. Go, so go forward. I already read that, so just go forward. Should be a yellow book cover and a few slides. Yeah, this one. And um, you can go ahead and skip on to the next one as well, please, Daniel. Um, This is a picture of oxen together in a yoke, a man walking alongside them. This is obviously not a biblical photo. Um, But the oxen and other animals were used in Jesus' day as well, and they would be yoked together under a wooden yoke to pull a load together. It would be a load that one of them wouldn't be capable of pulling alone, but together they could accomplish it. And at times, a stronger, more experienced animal could be yoked with a younger or weaker animal, a more inexperienced animal. The wiser and stronger one would both teach the younger animal how to pull and take on the brunt of the labor. When Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you, it's easy. He isn't lifting a heavy burden onto our shoulders and sarcastically suggesting, this should be easy for you. He is saying, I am in this yoke. Come join me. We'll pull together. I am a gentle and humble teacher. I'll take the brunt of the weight. And I've asked my husband to join me for an illustration. Sweetheart, it's laying right there on the ground. Just want to illustrate this for a minute because I think sometimes it is meaningful. So let's just pretend that this is a yoke. This was the best thing I had at home. And that um, there's a chain hooked up on here and a car behind me. Do you all think that I'm going to be able to pull that car myself pulling this yoke? Say no. (laughs) Okay. But if this big, strong guy comes along, and let's just say that just for fun every day, he pulls cars with chains with his bare hands all around the streets just for fun because that's how powerful that he is. And if he comes along and he yokes up with me, do you think I'm going to be able to pull that car? Say yes. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, sweetheart. So to be in this yoke with Christ is to be pulling his load with him. So what is his load? It is to bring the reign of God into ordinary human life, into your ordinary human life, into the ordinary lives of the people that you encounter. This is why Jesus came the way he did, lived the way he did, and died the way he did. In the midst of our ordinary world, he was pulling the load of bringing the kingdom of God into everyday human life. So when Jesus tells us his yoke is easy and his burden is light, it is not light inherently. It is light because of who we are yoked to. We are pulling together with him, working together to bring the presence and power of God into ordinary human life, ours and those around us. Let's read this again. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This prayer is part of a message that Jesus preached after he had been in his hometown 
And while he was there, he experienced a lot of ridicule and rejection. His old neighbors, his childhood friends, and even many of his family were stuck in their religious ways. They would not acknowledge his power or his authority. And he even said, I can't do many miracles here. He was questioned by many and doubted by more. There were many who wanted to believe in a Messiah, but they were seeking a military or political leader. Jesus was not what they had in mind. His actions and inaction fell far short of their hopes and dreams. Jesus was not living up to their expectations. They had been waiting 400 years for a Messiah, and now the one who claimed to be it was a disappointment. The same book that I referenced earlier by Dallas Willard, he quotes a friend of his saying this, If you follow Jesus long enough, he will disappoint you. Maybe we are disappointed in our yoke. We are disappointed with our circumstances, frustrated with our workload, discouraged with the task of seeing God's kingdom evident on earth. Maybe we are disappointed with God's promises, which seem to be going unfulfilled, or disappointed with a life that is harder than expected. We thought walking with God was supposed to make things better. Possibly it's too hard because we're trying to pull alone. Possibly we're trying to pull away our own way. Or perhaps it's just because the work comes first and the harvest comes later, and we can't see that harvest that God has promised while we'll still hear plowing clods of mud. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read about some Bible heroes. They don't look at all like modern superheroes who never die and always win in the end. We'll read a section of this. By faith, Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. And I just listed their names because there's a section in this verse that talks about each of them, and I just wasn't going to read the full length. So it tells their story, and it says this. All of these died in faith without having received the promises. But from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a better country, a city for them. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, Obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Their harvest would be in heaven. How many of these people listed, or the loved ones around them, when these 
things were happening in their lives probably experienced disappointment with God. How many of them were a bearer of a promise of God and did not receive the promise in their lifetime? They plowed with Jesus and never saw the harvest. I met with my dad recently and we were discussing this and I said, I don't think we talk about this enough from the pulpit or maybe with our friends. I don't think we talk enough about disappointment with God. That as a matter, of course, of being a God follower, it's going to happen. We're going to encounter a time when we think God has let us down. If it hasn't happened to you yet, just keep following God a little longer. What are we going to do about our disappointment with God? How badly is that going to rock our world? How many times will it be okay for God to let us down before we give up and stop following him? How long will we wait for a promise before we turn our back on him or take matters into our own hands? How much torture or death or false accusations or poverty or homelessness like these heroes of the faith will we tolerate before we decide God has given up on us so we should give up on him too? Perhaps part of the answer is just knowing the disappointment will come. Like when you buy a car, you know eventually it's going to need an oil change, a set of tires. If you keep it long enough, it's going to need a serious repair you were not expecting and you may not have the cash flow for it. God is not a car, but I'm making a parable here. We can handle a few oil changes and a couple of tires, but when something goes seriously wrong or we weren't expecting it or a lot of things go wrong at once with that car or one really big thing goes wrong, we're going to be upset about this dumb car and get angry and wish we hadn't bought into it or maybe consider dumping it. But when a lot of things in life go wrong or a really big thing goes wrong or a promise goes unfulfilled for years or decades, we are likely to experience some significant questioning and disappointment with God. God can handle your questions, your disappointment, and use them to work out good. That is good news. God already took all the sin and all the failure of mankind and turned it into salvation and eternity. That is good news. First of all, if you have accepted Christ as your master and you intend to walk in life with him, be prepared. Expect to experience disappointment with the one person who is supposed to be life's greatest answer. Second of all, what can we do in that moment? If you're in that moment now of things are going wrong or promises long awaited, or you're going to find yourself in that moment in the future, or maybe you have a close friend in that moment, what will we do about our disappointment? And when moments of disappointment turn into seasons or years of waiting, then what? How do we wait in that kind of desert? Another book I'm reading by Alicia Britt Cole is called 40 Days of Decrease, A Different Kind of Hunger, A Different Kind of Fast. She says this, I would not trade that desert of pain for the world. Deserts unclutter the soul. Psalm 69.3, the psalmist echoes this. He says, I am weary from crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. So when we are walking in this desert, how will we wait? Who will we be when we emerge on the other side of the desert? Will we be a person who has lost our faith? Will we step out of Jesus' yoke and say, sorry, it was too hard. It took too long. I haven't seen the harvest yet. 
In America, we have this mentality that increase equals happiness and decrease equals suffering. The same author, Alicia Brick Cole, says this, When Father God calls us to fast increase, decrease will purify our souls. Perhaps one reason we resist waiting is it feels like decrease. Decrease equals suffering, and of course suffering is bad, therefore waiting is bad. If one day our wait is over and we receive that long-awaited gift, we might say, it was worth waiting for. Of course you can say that. You have that thing. Of course it was worth waiting for. Easy enough to say, now the wait is over. When I finally held each of my sons in my arms, it was easy to say, you were worth waiting for. But during that wait, it surely wasn't feeling worth it. I dreamed of having children of my own ever since I was a little girl. I'm the oldest of five girls, and I felt a sense of responsibility for them as we grew up. The left picture is hard to see, but I'm holding a little doll who was one of my favorite dolls and caring for the doll before I was old enough to care for real children. When my last two sisters came along, I was old enough to change their diapers, feed them, dress them in very silly costumes, and comfort them. I watched my mom deliver those two girls in our home, and I thought, one day this is how it will be. I'll birth my babies in my home, I'll snuggle them, I'll raise them, I'll be their mommy. I went to college just to be sure I could have a career, just in case Mr. Man and many children wasn't really in God's plan. But the career wasn't what I longed for or dreamed of. When my husband and I married, we were seniors in college, and um, you can switch to the next one. Uh, Slide, thank you. Uh, This is our engagement photos, and they were taken right outside of our other church building on Bandera, right after Daniel and Esther's wedding. Uh, Like most college students, we were broke, and after college, our job and our income and our student loan situation was pretty overwhelming. We postponed having kids for a couple years to try to get on top of all of that, and then a couple more, and then a few more. And every year that went by, we would discuss whether a family was in the cards yet and agree to postpone it another year, and my heart would break a little more. Seven years into our marriage, our relationship was struggling badly. We spent a couple years in counseling, during which I had serious doubts about whether or not our marriage was going to survive. By year nine of marriage, I was about to turn 30. 30 seemed really old to me at that time, factoring in the no children yet factor. I had expected to be done having children by the age of 30, rather than not even knowing when we would be getting started. To pull me out of the emotional and mental pit that I was in, I decided to be sure I had accomplished something in life that would make a difference for children. I spent several months on a 30th birthday campaign to raise money to fund clean drinking water in a needy country. In total, I was blessed to collect a little over $5,000 to build a water well, which, because I had reached that um, dollar amount, I was allowed to name the well, and I named it the Water of Joy. Two years later, I received a notification of a GPS dot on the middle of that map in Ethiopia where that well is built. And the left is a photo of two boys in the community who like, were really happy pumping that clean water. And the little fence built around it, the community um, gathered together to build themselves as an effort to try to keep animals away from um, defecating in that area.
by the time I received these photos, I was holding in my arms my one-year-old son. Uh, he was conceived when I was 30 and born a month after my 31st birthday. I waited 10 years of marriage and a seeming lifetime to be a mommy and hold him in my arms. Was he worth it? Was the wait worth it? Author John Coes says this, Spiritual disciplines do not transform. They only become relational opportunities to open our heart to the spirit who transforms. Our culture is instant and impatient. We have no use for a crockpot God in this microwave America. When we're waiting, we just want God to zap us and make it all better. Even with our own spiritual transformation, we want to just be the perfect person right now without it being such a struggle to grow up and change. Sometimes waiting for God's crockpot plan makes us want to give up on him or on his plan. Um, If I can stretch this analogy, I wonder if sometimes God's plan is more, uh, or life's plan, is more like a pressure cooker. This is my pressure canner. I have a smaller one, but I wanted to bring the big one because it was bigger. (laughs) A little more of a visual aid. With a pressure cooker, you put the lid on, you close it, you seal it tightly, you turn on the heat, and you, this applies massive amounts of pressure. And food that should have taken hours and hours and hours to cook in the crock pot is ready in just minutes. I, the very first time when we were married and I tried to cook a pot of beans, I think I cooked it for something like 30-something hours, and the beans were still hard. And then I never salted them, so it was terrible. But I now have advanced my cooking skills, and I can cook a pound of beans in my crock pot in about 20 minutes. I'm sorry, thank you, in the pressure cooker, which is this one. Thank you for correcting me, Joyce. So what changed? Just the pressure. And when the pressure is on in our lives, this is our chance to explode or process. The pressure intensifies our experience, but the pressure has the potential to be more effective in our transformation. From God's perspective, it isn't that thing you want that is worth waiting for. It is you. It is the unique you, transformed by the experience of waiting and suffering. That you is what God has in mind. It wasn't my son who was worth the wait. It was me. It was my marriage. It was the me that is a different me because I waited It is a more broken, submitted, holy me than I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago when I first dreamed of having babies. If I can say one thing today, it's this. You are worth the wait that you, that God has in mind, that he is dreaming of, he is gently and kindly shaping and sometimes pressurizing, that you, that you really do want to become, that you is worth the wait. That you is the result of what waiting and disappointment and plodding along step after step in the yoke of Jesus when you can't see the harvest. It can do that to you. You are worth the wait. Benjamin, what time is it? That is what time it is. Okay. I'm normally like, 
already at 12 o'clock by halfway through, so we're doing good. <laughs> All right. Psalm 27:14 says this. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. We can gather from the psalmist's encouragement here to be strong and take courage that waiting is not going to come easily. This book, When God Says Wait, by Elizabeth Lang Thompson, is another one I have been reading. And I'm going to read just a few quotes from it that has stood out to me and are pertinent here. She says this, The longer the wait, the louder the silence. We know God is good, so we swallow hard and determine to wait patiently. On good days, we turn back to prayer. On bad days, we turn to social media. Time passes, more time than we'd ever imagined. We question God, the Bible, ourselves. The longer God's silence stretches, the more things start to break inside. For many of us, waiting seasons are the first time our faith has truly been tested. Waiting for so long does something to your hope, to your heart. Whatever it is you are waiting for, true love, a baby, a job, a friend, graduation, the longer you wait, the more time God and Satan has to work on you. So what do we do when we are waiting? When God says wait, we can control only two things. How we wait and who we become along the way. The temptation during waiting times is to torment ourselves with questions we can't answer, questions no one can answer, like why, why me, how long? Instead, we could focus on these questions we can't answer. How will I wait? Who will I become along the way? James 1, chapter 1 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let perseverance finish its work. Perseverance is the work of waiting. When I was a teenager, I remember conversations with my mom where she instructed me and my sisters and warned us about some pitfalls we might encounter in life. She's been a pastor and counselor for many years. She's heard lots of people's stories. And she wanted to instill some lessons from those stories into her daughters. Without violating any particular person's privacy or any HIPAA laws, she would instruct us about parts of life we hadn't encountered yet so we could recognize them if they came along our way. I recall conversations about sexual desires, unhealthy emotional attachments, children's sleepover parties, teens who believed and acted as if their parents were stupid, giving up on moral ethics, valuing life achievement over service and faith, and many others. The fact that this stuff existed in the world, and I was likely to encounter it sooner or later, prepared me to a certain extent for those encounters. When we are in seasons of waiting, Satan wants to trap us, just as much as God wants to transform us. We can be alert to some of Satan's particular traps during our desert seasons, during disappointment and waiting. Being alert can put us on the defensive to his tricks. Author Elizabeth Thompson details these following pitfalls in that book I mentioned earlier about waiting. Here's um, a few of the ones she mentions. The pitfall of bitterness. I can't believe this happened to me. I don't deserve this. The pitfall of selfishness. It's all I can do to get through the day right now. I have to look out for myself. The pitfall of self-reliance. 
God isn't taking care of me. I'll have to take matters into my own hands. The pitfall of doubt. Does God love me? There's no way a loving God could let his beloved children go through something like this. The pitfall of cynicism. Just look at that happy person. Just wait until something bad happens. Then they'll know happiness doesn't last. The pitfall of envy. Why would God give that person what I've been begging for all this time? And they didn't even ask for it. The pitfall of self-pity. Everyone is happy but me. No one understands. I'm alone. The pitfall of faithlessness. God has forgotten me. His promises are failing. Why bother praying? The pitfall of depression. My life is over. I'll never be happy again unless this waiting ends. In Job 30:26, he echoes some of these. He says, When I expected good, evil came. When I waited for light, darkness came. What do we do about these pitfalls? First, be alert. Satan is just as pleased about using your waiting for your destruction as God is about using it for your transformation. Don't let his trap sneak up on you. If you find yourself stuck in one of these pits, repent, get help. Second, allow friends and family to speak into you. Listen to their observations. When we're suffering, some comments by people can be really hurtful. Other times, especially if it comes from someone close to us, the sting might be God's way of drawing our attention to a place where we are stuck. My mom has this way of making me angry, gently pointing out something she is observing in my life that I'm blind to at the moment. As I spend time later thinking about her comment, my initial anger and defensiveness dissipates as I see the truth in what she shared. And I'm thankful that's still part of her role in my life. Third, ask God to protect you during your waiting as you try to submit to him and to his seeming silence. Fourth, let's try not to be like King Saul. He didn't do a good job waiting. The Israelites um, at this time in history, they've spent several hundred years being ruled by God and led by God's prophets. They had no political leader. And at this point in history, they were begging God. They were begging their current prophet Samuel for a king, just like the nations around them. God wanted to be their only ruler, with his guidance coming through his priests and prophets. But the people wanted politics. They wanted a tangible king. God relented, and the prophet Samuel anointed Saul as the first king of Israel. As he anointed Saul... Samuel predicted for Saul the events that would happen on that day, as the day that was following and the few days that were coming after that moment of being anointed. And Samuel concludes his instructions with this in Samuel chapter 10. It shall be when all these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Before Saul can enter his kingship, he has to wait. He knows exactly long, how long, seven days. Shouldn't be that hard, right? Saul followed all of Samuel's instructions that were given to him prior to this part of the instructions. This included gathering a large army of men around him. They intended to defend a group of Israelites from outsiders who had been threatening them. Saul reaches Gilgal with his crowd of recruits, and he waits just as Samuel instructed. In Samuel chapter 13, we read this. Now Saul waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. 
and he offered the burnt offering. And I'll interject, he knew better. This was not a job for common people at that time. It was a job for only priests. And plenty of people had been struck down by God for not being doing an offering in the right way and at the right time. So Saul knew better than to do what he was doing in this moment. This wasn't a oops. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw the people were scattering from me and you did not come within the appointed days and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked for the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In that moment, where Saul couldn't wait for God's promise any longer and took matters into his own hands, he lost the kingship of Israel for every generation going forward. David and his lineage would now be the heirs to the kingdom of Israel. It was now David's genealogy that would lead to the Messiah. What would have happened had Saul waited just a little longer? Maybe he would have lost more men. Maybe the men who scattered were better off leaving anyway. Maybe they weren't truly committed to Saul or his cause. Maybe God would have defeated the enemy with the remaining handful of army that was left, giving even more authority to Saul's reign as king and a military leader. We'll never know. Because Saul couldn't wait any longer. He believed Satan's lie of self-reliance. That God had abandoned him and it was time to take matters into his own hands. Have you ever thought the worst part of waiting is the not knowing? I wish God would just give me a yes or no. I can move on with my life. But life doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. It is in the not knowing that God works on our heart, our faith, and our character. It is in the not knowing that we break down. Our flesh, our self, our resolve, our I can do this, breaks down into I can't do this. And that brokenness is the place where God is at work. It leads us to submission and to desperation. And submission and desperation are a great place for transformation to begin. It is in the not knowing that we are transformed, that the weight becomes worthwhile because the weight changes us. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God works all things together for our good. It doesn't say all things are good. It doesn't say God sends all things. It doesn't say God meant for bad things to happen. It says we know that in all things, all good, all bad, all confusion, all despair, all disappointment and all loss, all hope and all death, all grief and all suffering in all things. God has the ability and the intention to make something good come out of it for you, the one whom is called according to his purpose. 
In this making something good, God invites our participation, invites us into spiritual transformation. He invites us to stop whining, why? And begin asking, how will I respond? Who will I become in my response? Sometimes it is when we get our expectations confused, that's when we feel let down by God, maybe even betrayed by God. Hurt and betrayal open us up to doubt and anger, and left unchecked, doubt and anger put our very walk with God at risk. So we need to get one thing straight. God has already given us his very best, and his best is all we need. He sent his son to walk in our shoes, to suffer like we do, to take all our shame and all our sin and all death and strike them down once and for all, to redeem them. God gave his own self, his very best gift, has already paid the price for all the sin you have done and all the sin that has been done to you. And amazingly, there's more. We have salvation. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit now. We have the promise of eternity. We have everything we need to live and serve God, according to 2 Peter 1.3, which says, For as you know him better, he will give you... Daniel, would you skip ahead, please? He will give you, through his great power, everything you need for living a truly good life. He even shares his own glory and his own goodness with us. As we're making our requests of God, let's keep in mind, his goals are bigger than our temporary comfort. He prioritizes our holiness over our happiness. It's not that God is opposed to joy or that happiness in itself is somehow wrong. I certainly like being happy. It's just that's not God's primary goal. The expectation that my happiness is God's primary goal is an expectation that is going to let me down. When my parents teach about relationships, they often discuss what makes for a valid expectation. A valid expectation is this. One that is communicated, agreed upon, and realistic. An expectation that life will be painless is not an accurate expectation of life on earth. A heaven that is painless is an expectation that is communicated, agreed upon, and realistic according to the Bible, but not on earth. In fact, Jesus promised that in this world we would have struggle. In John chapter 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about his coming death and resurrection, trying to prepare them so they don't fall apart, which they do anyway, and also what will come following that. And it says this, I have told you all this so that you will have peace of heart and mind. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but cheer up, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, get your expectations sorted out. Waiting is going to happen. Waiting is going to be hard. Plowing a field when the harvest is years away is hard. Amazingly, during all of this, God has faith in us. Even when we are still doubting, when we are still grumbling, God calls us mighty warriors. Rise up. He sees who you can be, who we will be, who we can be if we allow suffering, waiting, disappointment to transform us. I have two friends, both of whom um, are around my age and experienced uh, infertility when they tried to conceive their first child for much longer than expected, both of them a little bit over two years of time. And one of them 
um, said this to me one time, and she said, Joy, that time was so difficult for me, and it just shook me up a lot. And I have to say that I lost my faith during that time, and I'm not really interested in the things of God at this point in my life. Because I had been trying to encourage her and and share with her um, about God a little bit. And the other friend, um, she chose to accept God's transformation of her life during that season. And I guarantee she's a better mom now. And, And both of those had beautiful baby girls. And the first one still has not forgiven God for letting her down at her time of infertility. And the other one uh, is going through the way that motherhood will break you down in a beautiful way because infertility broke her down a little bit too and brought her into submission with the plan of God. So Satan has a plan, and his plan is what my first friend is experiencing right now. And I continue to pray for her, and I know her, and I continue to pray that God will intercede and interject into her life at a point in time, and she will see the transformation that he has in store for her. But this is our opportunity. And the temptation when we're waiting in these times is if we're not going into a pit is to at least just do nothing. And if we're not careful, we'll spend our times of waiting the same way we spend our time in a waiting room. Frivolous, brainless, unmotivated, and waiting can become time wasted and life lost. Or waiting becomes our full-time occupation, the only thing we ever think about, and our only occupation. So in the meantime, while we're here waiting, we have some decisions to make. How will I wait? How will I use this time? Who do I want to be during this season? Who do I want to be becoming so that I am transformed when when this is over? And how can God use my life even now? These times of suffering bring us face-to-face with our own humanity and our own limits. The only thing we can control while we're waiting is how we wait. We control how we wait. And each of us can take charge of our time in the waiting room, not in a way that says, forget you, God. You're doing a terrible job. I'm taking the reins. I'm going to do things my own way. But in a way that says, Satan, you want to ruin this stage of my life, but I won't let you. I'm using this time for good. I'm using this time for God. Our waiting is going to be messy. We're human. Sometimes it's going to be ugly. Sometimes we're going to fall apart, but it needs not be time lost. Disappointment with God doesn't have to be the end of you or the end of your journey with him. Walking away from the yoke of Jesus doesn't mean you can't take a deep breath and ask for forgiveness and walk back. We don't get to choose what happens to us, but we get to choose what happens in us. It might not sound glamorous, but spiritual growth is no small gift. Waiting, disappointment, suffering, perseverance, these things forge in our hearts things that cannot be wrought any other way. During one of the many seasons of Israel's captivity, while they waited for God to set them free, Zephaniah the prophet said this to God's people. Therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration. Until the day I rise up, on that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. Yahweh, your God, is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will bring you quietness with his love. 
He will delight in you with shouts of joy. So at journey's end, I pray you can look back and say, I am better because of the weight. I am worth the weight. God is at work. Satan is at work. I fell in a pit and God pulled me out. I made an ugly mess and I also persevered. I gave up. Then I submitted. Then I served. Then I overcame. And here I am. I have the thing. Praise be to God for he is good. Or here I am still waiting. Praise be to God for he is good. I know how I want to wait empowered. And I know what I want to become a faithful child of God. You are worth the wait. Your pain will be worth the wait. Your joy will be worth the wait. Your transformation will be worth the wait. God sees you. He knows you. He waits patiently for you. And he has said you are worth waiting for. Next week, we're going to talk about some characters in the Bible who waited a lot and what we can learn from them. We'll discuss some tools from their stories for getting through disappointment and waiting seasons. Um, And today, I imagine most of us here are probably waiting for something, healing for yourself or for a loved one, salvation for a friend, to find the right person to marry, a meaningful, lasting friendship for children to be conceived, for children to grow up for financial freedom, a career break, a promotion, to grow up and get out of your parents' house, for high school to begin, for graduation, for retirement, for time to do the thing you've always wanted to do, or for any other thing I haven't mentioned, but God knows you are waiting for. So if there's something weighing on you today that you are waiting for, would you stand? And let's just invite God to enter into our waiting, to help us ask good questions. How will I wait? Who am I becoming as I wait? And God, what do you have for me right now, even as I wait? Lord, we just invite you to come in to our waiting. It's a part of life, but that doesn't mean it's easy. But you are beautiful, and your plan for our transformation is beautiful. And the person we are now is beautiful, and the person you are calling us to become is beautiful. Help us to seek you in this time, to seek how we will wait and who we are becoming and what do you have for us right now while we are waiting. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you with our questions. We can trust you with our failure. We can trust you for bringing something good. We love you, Lord. If you need some extra prayer today, there will be some folks up here to pray with you. Or if you just need a hug and encouragement, turn to the person next to you. I'm sure they'll give you one. And uh, you're dismissed, and we'll see you next week.